Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your co-host, Shahna Saqani. In today's episode, we speak with Aisha Choudhury about her new book, The Color of God, published with One World Publications in 2021. The Color of God describes Choudhury's personal, spiritual, and to an extent professional journey as she navigates her life as a South Asian immigrant Muslim woman raised in Canada. Rich in its analysis of its major themes, such as patriarchy, religion, colonialism, capitalism, Islamophobia, the family, grief, it pushes us to think more deeply about the choices that we make in response to various traumas, such as death or the violence of racism. Readers will appreciate the unapologetic rawness, its very personal but also academic nature, the ways that Chaudhary weaves Islamic and Quranic themes and narratives into her own. Written in an accessible and engaging way, the book will interest academics and non-academics. It will make for an excellent read for both undergraduates and graduate courses in women's and gender studies, English classes, Islamic and religious studies classes, any course on migration and theory and methods, among many others. Chaudhary's ownership and embrace of an Islam that values her humanity and her opposition to the oppressive patriarchal Islam that she grew up with makes it an essential read for those who are seeking an Islam that is rooted in compassion and love. In today's discussion, Chaudhary and I discuss the origins of the book and its usefulness as a teaching resource. We also talk about Puritan Islam and the toll that it takes on our humanity and the intersection of patriarchy and Islamophobia highlighting the complexity of telling a story, parts of which may fulfill stereotypes about Muslims, and the negotiation that the process of telling such a story entails. Chaudhary also shares her ideas on who the intended audience of the book is and her relationship with that audience, the advice that she would give to someone interested in writing in this genre, and a lot more. This here is my discussion with Aisha Chaudhary. Salam Aisha, thank you so, so much for joining me today to talk about your new book, The Color of God. I am so excited to have you here and discuss this book with us. Thank you for having me. Sure. And before we begin, I'm just going to say that this book had me feeling things that I didn't know were possible. So I, I as you know, I mean, I, I read the, I read a different version of it for the workshop when you know, when you were workshopping, workshopping this book with other uh, Muslim women. And then too, it was a complete joy. It was a pleasure. It made me cry. It made me laugh. But the unapologetic rawness, the very personal, but also the very, very academic nature of it, the way that you incorporate Islamic and Quranic themes and stories into the, into your story, the, the depth of the analysis of themes like patriarchy and colonialism and Islamophobia and racism and the family and the, the complex relationships that we have with our families and capitalism and the way that you contextualize the choices that you've made, your lifestyles. I mean, it just had me asking. It, it had me shaking my head in complete awe because I also felt, and I think, I, I don't I don't know if I told you this when we were workshopping the book, but I felt like so much of my own story was being told and I felt relief at not having to tell it myself anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, that, that, that quote by my, my, uh, my Angela where she says that there's no agony um, greater than an untold story. Mm-hmm. I felt like, I felt like this burden of having to tell my story was lifted from me and it was so freeing. But also as a Muslim woman of color, as a brown woman of color, I th- I think for me the most powerful thing about this book is probably the way that you own Islam in this very deeply powerful and healing way 
And I say this again, as a Muslim feminist who is constantly asked to just explain and defend my choices as a Muslim feminist. And why am I still a Muslim if patriarchy is so bad? And you respond to these unacceptable and these really, really invalid questions in in such a stunning and such productive and effective ways that I feel like I can just give this book to anyone who asks me those questions. <laughs> this is it. And I, and, I, and I, as I told you in the email, I've been copying, you know, I've been buying copies of it left and right for my friends and especially for my siblings because I feel like this is such a relatable book. And I just, I just want to say thank you for writing it. And I, on behalf of way too many of us, um, and for letting me be one of the first to read it and to talk with you about it. So thank you. Thank you, Shanaz. I really appreciate that. And those, um, those words mean a lot to me, actually, because as you can imagine, when I was writing the book, I was, you know, it was uh, a little bit of a tortured process at times. And it was scary and terrifying. Um, And it was really my hope that, um, that it that there there would be this kind of resonance that people would feel seen through it, people would feel witnessed through it, um, and that they would see stories, they would see themselves reflected on the page in ways that maybe they're not used to. Um, mm-hmm. And so, to hear you say that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. so validating. <laughs> like, <laughs> it makes me I mean, the littlest the littlest things. You know, even when you're talking about something like uh, menstruation and and those menstruation clots, or uh-huh. you're talking about of course the the you know the all this, the entire time, the intersection of Islam being, you know, of Islamophobia and, mm. and patriarchy. And it's just, it's wonderful. And it's so healing for me. And I, I, I felt seen through, I feel, I, I've never read anything like it. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so grateful for it. So it's our tradition to ask our guests to tell us about themselves and to share their intellectual journey and biography with us. So can you tell our reader a little bit of who you are and the kind of work you do and how you got started? Um, so. I, you know, as I mentioned in the book, I was born in, um, into a family that had just very recently uh, joined a fundamentalist Muslim cult. Um, they, my parents immigrated from Pakistan to Canada in the late uh, 60s, early 70s, and they spent the first decade of their time in Canada trying to assimilate into Canada. Um, and they had an experience, actually, that many, many people of color have when they come to a white supremacist country which is that they learn that they're not white and that they have a race that is a different color um, and that that color is not as good as white. Um, And so um, my parents were learning this, and this is a very traumatic, I think, it's a very traumatic experience for people. And and they react, I think people cope with it and react to it in very different ways. So at first, my parents were very much trying to assimilate to become Canadian, which was in their, like, which was constructed as a white kind of Canadian. Um, but realizing that actually, because it could never be white, they would never fully be this version of a Canadian that they were feeling pressured to be. Um, and so at, at one point, um, as I discuss in the book for various reasons, um, my parents, my parents, my father goes to a Friday prayer, uh, in a mosque that used to be a church, which I think is very important, uh, the architectural symbolism of that. Um, and there's a Muslim, there's a, the, the khatib that day, the person who's giving the sermon that day is a scholar from Pakistan uh, who founded this organization called Tanzim Islami. And he um, is giving the khutbah that day and he's preaching a version of Islam that is very post-colonial, very, that's um, post-partition, it's nationalist, um, and it's a form of Puritan Islam. It's a Salafi kind of Islam. And my father... Uh, the khutbah really resonated with my father because he felt in a way seen um, in a way that he that he had never felt. And he also felt that 
the vision that was being preached gave him a way to belong, gave him a, for, a sense of belonging in which him being brown, him being Pakistani, and him being a Muslim were actually, instead of working against him, these were identities that worked for him. And so um, this was a very compelling form of Islam that my parents were attracted to. And I, I think of it as a kind of conversion because this was not a form of Islam that they were raised with. It was not a form of Islam that they encountered in Pakistan, but rather they encountered in Canada and kind of converted to this way, uh, uh, this form of Islam, which was very anti-assimilationist, which was very Muslim supremacist. And so um, I was born into this household and my, my curriculum was formed by this cult and so by this organization. And so um, the Quran was a primary, a pri- was, is, my, is my primary literary text. The stories of the Quran are the first stories that I learned. Um, the Quran is a lens through which I understand the world. You know, we, we learned to recite the Quran when we were very young. We do, started um, reading Tarjuma Quran, which I talk about in the book, what that is, read, learning the Quran's translation when we were very young. Um, so it only made sense for me, actually, to do a PhD in Islamic studies and to become a scholar, um, to become a scholar of Islam, of Islam and to do that both in a Western academic setting and also through various uh, seminary settings. Oh my gosh. Oh, and that, that, you know, the, that whole story that it, it's so, so clear throughout it, the, the way that the Tanzim affects your, you know, your form of Islam and your family and the, the ways that your immigrant family responds to the trauma of migration ultimately. Um, it's just, it's again, it's very relatable. Um, but of course every, every family and everybody responds to migration differently, but, um, yeah, so thank you for sharing that with us. Tell us about the origins of this book. How did it come about? And and since it's not a conventional academic book, it is very, very academic. And, you know, like I said, it, it, its nature is still academic. And you're an academic. I don't think you can escape that. <laughs> but it's not published with an academic press. What was mm-hmm. that process of writing and publication like? Um, so I was, um, you know, I this book is a book that people have, all my life, in a way, have told me I should write. Um, they've been like, "Oh, you should write your life story," and I and it's a book that I absolutely never intended to write. And um, and I found myself a few years ago in 2015, 16. I had a fellowship at Radcliffe at, at the Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, and um, for the first time in many in a long, long time, maybe the first time ever, I found myself living by myself. Um, with, and my job was to just think about, think about one thing at a time. And it was an amazing experience after having gone through graduate school and the process of being an assistant professor. Um, I had just received tenure right before I went to Radcliffe. And so I was in this space that was intellectually, you know, very capacious, uh, very, uh, very, like there was a lot of space for me to think and to process and to slow down. Um, and one afternoon early on during my time at Radcliffe, I was, um, the sun was out. I didn't want to be in front of my computer looking at the screen. Uh, so I thought I would take a notebook and a pen downstairs uh, to the patio downstairs and sit in the sun for a little bit. And I was actually trying to write the Islamic legal studies, um, the article for Islamic, the, the Oxford Handbook of Islamic Law, mm-hmm. um, Islamic Legal Studies, a critical historiography paper. I was trying to think about that, actually. And I thought, oh, I'll go down and I'll take some notes and sit in the sun and just sort of like, you know, um, not be in front of a computer screen. And I sat down there, uh, I was alone on the patio, and I actually ended up writing what became the first chapter of this book, um, Anguish. And it, and it really felt in, I really felt like the, the essay just kind of came through me. Like I didn't intend to write it. 
and I was I was moved by the experience of having written it. Um, and so having written it, I called Rumi, who was at Stanford at the time on a fellowship as well. And so I called him and I said, um, hey, I, I wrote something. I'm not sure what it is. Do you mind if I read it to you? And he he said, oh, yeah, I'm taking a walk. This is a good time for me to hear it. And um, so I so and Rumi's my partner. And so I so I read him the the piece. And when I finished, he was like, oh, my God, I had to sit down while you were reading. I don't like I've never heard you write in that voice. What are you doing? And this is amazing. Please keep doing it. And I think that that whole story, I mean, I tell that story for a reason, which is that it's so important to have time to slow down and to think and to process and to let your body sometimes do what it needs to do um, and to discover the voices that are within ourselves. I think one of the things that happens in the academy is often we are, we become so cut off from ourselves. We ask questions that we're not interested in. We cultivate um, a persona and a sound that doesn't uh, reflect necessarily who we are so that we actually forget what we sound like. Um, so that was part of the journey of this book was discovering the different ways that I sound. And, you know, the first time you hear yourself, I think for people who were raised without the ubiquitous iPhone, um, where we're now recording everything, for those of us who were raised in a generation before that, you know that you actually didn't grow up hearing your voice. And the first time you hear your voice, often you don't like it, <laughs> you know, like the first time you encounter it. And so, um, and it can be confusing and it can, you can have complicated feelings about it basically. So that was, it was wonderful to have space to experience that and to confront that. And then the other is that, you know, um, we live in a world where we're often made to feel like we don't have, you know, our voices don't matter what we, um, nobody's interested in our stories. Um, that if we bring the personal into the academic, that somehow we're compromising our academic integrity instead of actually strengthening it. And so it's so important to be in, in a community of people who can, you know, listen to you, hold space for you, who can encourage you, who love you, who can be loving towards you, and also help you cultivate your voice to become stronger um, and more, more beautiful, more constructive, uh, more loving. Um, and I definitely felt that way with this book, you know, starting with my partner, but also moving out to, you know, I, as I was writing, I was reading the book various forms of it to various people throughout the writing process. And so I definitely, and I shared the book, uh, you know, in the workshop, but I shared it with dozens of other people as well. And I just really, I think the book is so much better and so much stronger because it had so many loving eyes and hands and ears on it that it just, you know, it wouldn't have been the same book without it. So that's a, the community part of that is I think a really important one that I want to emphasize. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, going with an academic press. So, you know, there's like this sort of simplistic narrative that we have about how how publishing works, right? So there are apparently academic presses and non-academic presses. But then when you get closer, so trade presses, but then when you look closer, you realize, well, academic presses often have trade trade wings and then trade presses can be known for writing, like for publishing um, important literary works or have a strong list in Islam or Islamic studies or various other uh, specializations. And so I really wanted to write a book. I really, you know, the book is to me is an is, is a book of embodied theory. Like it's absolutely a book of embodied theory. I never actually set, set out to write a memoir. And I don't think of this book as a memoir, even though I know that for publishing, you kind of have to put the book in a particular shelf and embodied theory is not like a rubric on the right. shelf. And so it's considered memoir. But um, like many memoirs, I think this book, you know, I, I, th I, I was thinking of this book as embodied theory. It's like a, it's a series of essays in which I'm, I'm 
thinking about ideas and making arguments, but I'm doing it through storytelling and without separating those ideas away from who I am. And in fact, thinking, you know, this is something that I've learned from Black feminism, that, you know, um, when ideas get abstracted away from the human, they can become uh, dehumanizing. And so I'm really interested in connecting the lived experience, the embodied experience to the theoretical one. Um, but I wanted to, so I wanted to write like that and I wanted to write accessibly. I was getting kind of tired of writing um, to like a small group of elite people who thought they were smarter than everybody else. Not that all academics think that, but, you know, I just didn't want to participate in this game where I was writing in, a, in writing to be obtuse, writing to not be understood by everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, One World was a, pub, a perfect, I think, you know, when, when that sort of possibility became apparent, it was a perfect, I think, it felt like the perfect choice for me. I have read other books that they have read, that they have published about Islam that have deeply shaped me. Um, and, you know, they did a beautiful job with the book. Like, I, the book itself is gorgeous. The cover, the pages, the text, all of it is beautiful. But also, you know, it's, they really saw, they had a global vision for the book. So the book came out in April in the UK. It, it's, it's coming out today, actually, May 11th in Canada and the United States. And it also um, has been, they've sold it to HarperCollins India to, for, to come out in the subcontinent. So um, I was really, I was really excited because they have published such strong um, literary books already, um, but also, uh, and books on Islam, but also because they had, they understood that this book would have um, the global work that it could do. So, and that they really made that happen. So I'm really excited about that. And so timely. I um, I was speaking to someone recently. I I did a um a workshop, a writing workshop recently, and one of the things that they were encouraging me, all the academics there were, I needed to write something about my life, and um, that it was a perfect time to do so, um, because you know publishers are trying with this whole diversity stuff, and um, they're trying, they're, they're try, some of them are trying very hard to sort of um, be more inclusive and and have more voices uh, of especially brown or women of color, so. And now the title, I, I know from before that you were thinking of doing a trilogy about the colors of God. So it was going to be green, brown, and red. Right. Should we be looking forward to the other two? <laughs> so, okay, yes, you're right. So when I was first writing, um, you know, I was writing with a notebook, uh, with a pen in a notebook, longhand. And for the first year and a half, I basically just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I wrote, I finished one book, notebook, then I was on my second, then on the third, then on the fourth. And I ended up filling, I think, four and a half notebooks in the end before I started transcribing the first, like the, from the beginning. Um, and I got to about one and a half notebooks, what, like one and a half notebooks form this book, The Color of God. And initially I was thinking, well, that there's three books here. One of them would be, so I would be thinking intersectionally about race and gender and religion, but I wanted to like, you know, emphasize one particular lens more than others. So that in green, that the first one would be green and that's where I would be emphasizing the religious lens. The second one would be red and that's where I would be thinking about gender um, and specifically about menstruation stories. And then finally it would focus on race. Um, but then, um, so, and the first, uh, you know, the first one and a half notebooks, which formed this book, I wrote in basically the first three months, actually, that I was, I started writing. Um, and then the rest of the time has been actually transcribing and then editing, editing and re-editing this, this book, which I think went through at least 12 drafts, actually 12 full drafts before we got to where we are now. Um, wow. And as I was doing the editing, I realized, oh, no, this is like a book on its own. It changed and, sh and it changed its shape so many times over the course of the editing that 
I realized, oh, I have no idea actually what I'm, what will the next two books will look like, if there will be two books, what they'll look like. And so, and I found like, I found the mystery of that actually very comforting and exciting. And so I've just sort of, I will, you know, I will be transcribing those. I will be writing them eventually, but I'm actually just as curious as everybody else about what they'll, what they'll look like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what so what does the color of god can i read actually i yes I love, absolutely I you can it. read yeah absolutely I love this um you know when, when you when you read it for the for the workshop and it goes what is your name Lilmunna? my name is Sibratullah. what does your name mean the color of god and what is the color of god um green i think or maybe light brown and mm. i just this this beautiful you know anecdote i guess has stuck with me since that first time that i read it and it's mm. just so this is, yeah, so the color of God. And I, I, I feel like there's so much power in the name itself. And mm-hmm. that little um, dialogue there tells us, you know, briefly also where the color of God comes from. And right. is just, you know, he's the, he's, he's this key figure in, 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 this, in the story. So um, I love the title. Yeah. <laughs> I love the title so much. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I notice at times that you, you mentioned audience a, a, bit, a bit ago. I um, I notice at times that you don't translate some non-English words, which I personally appreciate and love. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you do explain Islamic themes and other times you don't. What is Who is your intended audience and perhaps ideal audience for this book? Who do you hope will, what do you hope they'll get out of it? Um, that's such a good question. Um, and audience is, you know, such a question that we think about in so many different ways all the time. I think Toni Morrison once said um, that you should write the book you want to read. And in many ways, I do think that that, that that is one of the things that I was doing when I was writing this book. I was wanting to write a book for a younger version of myself, maybe 19, 20, 21. Um, and I wanted, and I didn't want it to be a book that she would just be like, oh, I love this book. It'd be a book, even as I was writing it, I was like, this is a book she's going to struggle with. But I wanted her not to be able to walk away from it nevertheless. Like I wanted her to keep on struggling with it. And so that is something that I was definitely thinking about. And, you know, usually in publishing, there's this, there's this um, phrase that gets thrown around that I've heard thrown around where they're like, oh, if a book is going to be really popular, like you want to write for the housewife in Kansas. And there's this mythical idea of who this housewife is. Apparently she spends her afternoons reading all the time. Um, and I think, you know, it was really important for me to not actually be thinking about this mythical woman in Kansas, but actually thinking about a younger version of myself who I knew better, who is more tangible for me, um, and with whom I can really, uh, you know, who, with whom I could, who could be a real interlocutor for me. And it was also important for me to do that because, you know, I was trying to decenter whiteness in my writing. Um, I was trying to decenter the questions of whiteness. I was trying to decenter the framework of whiteness, all the while fully understanding that, you know, I was born and raised in a country in which white supremacy is practiced. So I am formed by whiteness. It is inside of me. So I can't like disentangle myself from it completely. Um, So taking that into account, I was thinking about things like, you know, um, well, like I, I, there's various strategies that I use to try to decenter whiteness. One was I wanted the book to approximate the voice in my head. And the voice in my head is a multilingual voice, right? It's a voice that speaks in Urdu sometimes. It's a voice that sometimes speaks in Arabic. Um, and it doesn't, when, when those words, when those phrases, when those sentences, when those verses pop up in my head, I don't translate them for myself because I know what they mean. 
Um, and actually, speaking of that, I think one of the most beautiful things for me about the book is that we were able to actually use Arabic and or the script instead mm-hmm. of tra- their transliterations, yeah. the actual script themselves. And when I got my book um, a few weeks ago, I, you know, I just was completely thrilled to see the Arabic and the Urdu script there. It was so comforting to me. It actually made me feel like the book was a kind of a home in a way that other books have never mm-hmm. felt that way for me. Um, so that was a really beautiful experience aesthetically too. Um, and the other thing about writing to, you know, because I'm writing about Islam, um, I, I was thinking, you know, if, you're, if I'm making an argument about Islam, if anyone's making an argument about Islam, um, then the at least one of the audiences that you should be thinking about is a Muslim audience, which is to say that Muslims should feel addressed in that book and they should feel, and they should feel compelled to come along on the journey that you're bringing them on. So that was something that I tried to keep in my mind. I also was thinking of my audience as immigrants who are experiencing diaspora, you know, um, so not just South Asians, but really anyone experiencing diaspora and also anyone thinking about belonging, thinking seriously about belonging, the kinds of violences that our belongings often entail. Um, Also thinking about, you know, home, when we're searching for home, home is often a, is, is a place that where you can lose yourself just as much as you can find yourself. Uh, so I wanted to think deeply about those ideas. And so, and I wanted to, you know, engage people who are thinking about those ideas too. And one other thing I want to say about the audience is that I really, um, I tried to imagine, and this was real practice for me, especially after like given my training in academia, is that I really tried to imagine, uh, imagine a loving, caring, kind audience who was like interested in hearing what I had to say instead of thinking about my audience as like a mean and critical and angry reader who is just going to like try to tear apart what I'm saying and try to find all the holes in my argument. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, there's a thing we say in academia, I've heard professors say, where like, you know, write for an audience who is lazy, stupid and um, lazy, stupid and hostile. And I'm just like, no, like, I don't even want to talk to that person. So why, why would I write to that person? Um, and I think I want to, I'm writing to an intelligent, thoughtful audience who is, who is interested in what I'm saying and who can be in conversation with me. And so I think that really, really made a huge difference actually in the way that I, in many of the ways that I was writing and especially during the editing period. Oh, that's so, so nice. I mean, thinking of your audience as some, you know, as, as, as an intelligent um, person <laughs> rather than <laughs> someone who's going to yeah, be hostile and tear this apart. So yeah. when writing a powerful book like this that's both academic and non-academic that's so personal and so political at the same time and it's so autobiographical how do you decide which parts of your life and which parts of your story to share with your reader and which ones not to and and, and you're very honest about this in the book so, you know when you're discussing for example the ways that our memories work and how we tell and retell our stories at different points in our lives i'm curious about what your what an, if you had an underlying goal that was that helped you determine which stories and anecdotes were relevant or essential to the book Mm. and which ones you decided not to share. Right. So, yeah, I was very extremely careful with the choices that I was making. Um, And I was especially careful about which stories, because again, it wasn't, I wasn't trying to tell my life story. Um, It wasn't in my mind a memoir. Uh, I wasn't actually interested in telling stories for the sake of telling stories. And I was especially careful about that because you know, we live in a world where as women of color, as people of color, our stories are mined. They're extracted from us, often against our will. Um, apparently, we're only interesting if we like share our stories in certain ways, but then also those stories are used to invalidate our experiences or our thinking. Um, 
I just recently, actually, I think yesterday, read an article in the New York Times, an opinion piece by this young black man who is going, who um, was applying, he's in high school and he's applying uh, to college. And he talked about the pressure that he experienced from counselors, from recruiters, from colleges to tell, um, you know, like a story of trauma, basically, in order to get into college. Mm -hmm. But then he talked about friends of his that had done that and what it, how it made them feel in the, in the place that they eventually got into. Um, so he talks about the toll and the cost of doing that. And so, you know, I was really careful. I really did not want to tell stories for the sake of story, story, like just telling the story for entertainment. Um, because I think of this book, as I mentioned earlier, as a book of embodied theory, I was telling stories to make an argument. And so up until the, like the last few months that I was editing the book, you know, actually, right near the end of the book, uh, public, right near publication, I actually pulled four chapters from the book because I felt like the stories that I was telling, um, they didn't, they weren't doing the work that I wanted them to do in the way that I wanted to do, wanted them to do that work. In the end, I just wasn't comfortable with it. Um, and so then I just took it out because I was like, well, maybe these stories uh, are not ready for the world right now um, because I'm not ready to tell them in the way that I want to tell them at this at this moment. Um, and I think that that was a really important thing that I think we should remember about our about the stories that we choose to tell and uh, and the, and like the kind of control that we have over the stories that we tell and when we tell them. Um, but in terms of memory, as you mentioned, you know, memory. I was so curious about memory while I was writing the book because you know memory is fundamentally a creative act. Uh, memory is slippery. We tell different stories about ourselves to ourselves all the time. Our stories, our narratives change all the time. Um, and there's various reasons for why we do that. Uh, I recently read a book by John Edgar Wideman called Writing to Save a Life. It's a really, really beautiful book. And he says he has a sentence in there that I think is just like one of the truest things I've ever read. He says, difficult to accept that a tangle of self-interested deceptions is as close to truth as anyone ever gets. <laughs> and I, you know, I read that after, after reading the, like after like sending my book into publication, but I was, you know, I, I, that sentence really resonated with me because I think, you know, it's definitely a thing I'm talking about in the book all the time. I'm always drawing attention to memory and I'm thinking about like, what is memory doing? How is memory being constructed? And, um, and when, like, when, when, like, and what is the work that that remembering is doing? That's, that's really interesting to me in the book. And that's like a curiosity that you encounter over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm so, so deeply grateful for the complexity that you highlight throughout the book in telling parts of your story that as you acknowledge, and as you just mentioned in your response earlier, also fulfill stereotypes about Muslims. So I want to hear about the challenges of telling such stories. Like I want to know because I struggle with this personally. I want to know right. what that process of negotiation was like for you. How did you resist or come to terms with deciding very firmly that you were going to do that you were going to tell these stories. You were going to go ahead and do this despite what, you know, say Islamophobes and other racists might do with your story. Right. Uh that was a real challenge, you know. I mean, I think that like this experience of being uh being shamed for t for sharing basically, which is a fear that we have uh, because we're we're taught to be ashamed. Um, is not like, you know, of course, unique to me. And it's not even a new experience for me. So, you know, when I wrote my first book, Domestic Violence and the Islamic Tradition, I was exploring the intellectual history of one particular verse in the Quran, a verse that is used sometimes by, uh, by people, uh, including nation states, 
in order to justify the right of husbands to hit their wives. And, you know, while I was writing that book, there were many people, Muslims and non-Muslims actually, who like kind of cautioned me against doing that, who felt like I was exposing Muslims somehow uh, Mm -hmm. to external, like to more abuse, to more um, hateful rhetoric, because I was trying to have this conversation, actually, actually, this internal conversation amongst Muslims um, about what we think about domestic violence. And um, so this fear combined with the shame to create a kind of silence that I think in the end is deeply, it's deeply alienating and it makes it harder for us to survive. And in the book, in the introduction, I kind of deal with it. I say, you know, one of the things that this kind of way of thinking about um, thinking about the, the conversations we're allowed to have, the questions we're allowed to ask, is that it gives rise to this kind of Islam, this PR Islam, that is actually just as dehumanized mm-hmm. and flat and two-dimensional as an Islamophobic version of Islam. And I think, so it's really important to create space for us to have our conversations um, and to tell our stories, because one of the ways that we survive, actually, is by telling our stories. Um, I also see telling our stories as a way of building an archive, actually. Um, You know, we have so many stories of white women wearing niqab in quote-unquote Muslim lands, but we don't have, we have very few stories of Muslim women wearing niqab in white supremacist societies. I think that's like a really interesting point. Like, why are we interested in one kind of story and not in another kind of story? Um, And so, so that's like, so I felt really strongly that we have to tell our stories. And, you know, there's like, you know, you, you're saying this, but also the book came out in the middle of April in the UK. And so many, so many Muslim women have written to me in the, cool. in the meantime and told me, you know, told me a version of what you're saying, which is I've never seen myself represented on the page. I felt seen. I felt witnessed. I feel, I feel like even like in sharing my, my sorrow, like somehow that's a comforting thing. I feel less yes, crazy. I feel less alone. <laughs> <laughs> and so... You know, like we have the right to see ourselves represented on the page. And I think seeing ourselves represented makes us feel less alone, less crazy, but also allows us then to imagine new futures, right? Mm -hmm. And so often we'll just be alone and alienated and we're like with a machete cutting, clearing a path through like thick grass when actually there's like plenty of well, well hidden, well trodden paths all around us. And so, like, if we weren't spending all of our energy doing all of reinventing the wheel in a certain kind of way alone, what other things could become possible um, for us to think about and to do? And so I think in the end, like, not sharing our stories is actually hurtful. It harms us the most. And so I felt really deeply that I needed to, I felt obligated, I felt a strong, um, like, uh, I, I, like, I felt a strong moral calling to do that. But at the same time, you know, Islamophobia and racism are real. And so... You absolutely, if you're going to tell your stories, have to negotiate that. And I absolutely was negotiating that. I wanted to tell the stories as responsibly as I could, which might be why in the end I took out those last four chapters. Um, They weren't at the end. They were like throughout the book. But the four chapters that I took out at the end, um, you know, partly it was that. Like, was I telling the story as responsibly as I could? And I think, you know, writing, I really do feel, again, that this book was written in community, that so many people read it along the way, that so many people were in conversation with the ideas that I was bringing up along the way. And so I think that being in community, like in deep community, as I was writing this book, helped me see my blind spots, helped me see, helped me like change a sentence to make sure, to try my best that it, to, to make sure that it wouldn't be used in a way um, that would be detrimental, that it could do the constructive work that I wanted it to do. Having said that, you know, people are, 
people will still take things and and go with it in directions that I absolutely did not intend. But at that point, I feel like that's their responsibility. I tried my best. Um, and so, and the best, our best is what we, is the best we can do. <laughs> There's a statement that you, re- that, that you repeat a few times in at least a couple of chapters and it goes, beware, beware the one who seeks to save you on the assumption of his own exceptionalism or on her own exceptionalism at times as well. And it comes mm-hmm. up in your discussion of male preachers, um, white and brown ones, but also the white feminist Ariana, the FBI dinner and, and so on. Can you tell our audience what you mean by the statement? Um, so I think that statement is, you know, I was thinking about uh, about an experience I think that many of us have, which is that we find ourselves in a situation that feels, you know, paternalistic, where somebody is trying to save us. Somebody thinks that they have access to a kind of truth that we don't have, and that they are they have the right as a result of that truth to save us. So, you know, of course, like, this is like a common colonialist rhetoric. Uh, it's a rhetoric that justifies imperialism. Um, it's also, a, you know, it's also a position we find ourselves in sometimes in relation to our parents, our teachers, our religious authorities. Um, so I think many people have experienced, have experienced, you know, people trying to save them in this way. And it can be a very, um, it can, I think like it can, it's a very paternalistic experience. It's not very nice necessarily, but I think that when, you get that message enough times that you need to be saved. Um, and, and at the point that it, sometimes it can become internalized. And when it becomes internalized, I think one of the most, like the toxic effects of that is that then we, then we come to believe that actually we can't save ourselves, that we need other people to save us. So I was trying partly in saying that to draw attention to this dynamic. Um, but I was also wanting to draw attention to at the thing that I'm actually far more curious about, which is that, often we are the ones that are doing the saving as teachers, as scholars, as parents. Um, we think that somehow we have access to a truth that puts us in a position of authority in a hierarchical relationship over other people. And that, uh, and, and we take this false sense of exceptionalism and think that we're allowed to save others through it. So I wanted to draw attention to the fact that this false sense of exceptionalism is always a lie. And, you know, I, in that chapter in extremism, the chapter is called extremism. Toni Morrison, I quote Toni Morrison, where she says something like, if you need someone to be on their knees for you to feel tall, mm-hmm. then you have a problem. And so I wanted us all to think about what, what are the times that we, we do that to other people? And in doing that, I wanted to draw attention to our complicity. So like, how do I do this? And creating genuine communities of learning and freedom means that they, these communities actually cannot be hierarchical. They cannot be based on domination. They cannot be based on surveillance. And so really, I was trying to draw our attention to our complicity and to encourage us to, you know, ask some questions about relationships that we're in, in which we think somehow our knowledge puts us in a position of superiority over others. So death is an important theme in the book, and the the book opens and ends with the death of beloved Subhatullah, the color of God. I remember when I read this book in, you know, in its earlier form for our workshop and the part that stuck with me the most and the part that I had the most feelings about that made me really angry. I mean, throughout the book that happens, but in that particular moment, I just, I, I couldn't, um, was, was your discussion of Puritan Islam and, and the lack of, and its lack of mercy and compassion. Can mm-hmm. you tell our audience about what you mean by Puritan Islam? Um, mm-hmm. and cause it's, I don't think that's, that's quite a thing or, or that we don't, we don't hear of a Puritan Islam. And in this case, given the theme of grief and death in the book, how it interferes in your grief, in your grief. 
So, you know, I, in that chapter, in that last chapter, Please Water Me, I, I, and in, throughout the book in many ways, I'm thinking about Puritan religion. Like the, and, that, and by that I mean I'm thinking about the worship of purity, like any kind of idea of purity, actually. So it can be a formal religion or it can be a mindset. Um, uh, but the worship of purity is something that I think that we do in various ways in all of our lives. So I, you know, it's a theme that comes up throughout the book. It comes out, come, comes up in hair diaries. It comes up in extremism. It comes up in please water me. Um, and you know, we, we want to see a world that is organized, that is orderly, that is clean, that is straight, that is, and we're bothered by things when they're messy, when they're complicated, when they're unruly, when they're embodied in a way, I think the entire book is a resistance to that idea because both the form and the content of the book, because even the idea of separating ideas away from an author and lived experience feels to me a kind of worship of, feels to me a kind of puritanism, a worship of purity. Um, and so when we worship an idea over and against the human, what happens is humanity, our humanness becomes disfigured, especially the human animal, which is what we are, <laughs> right? And so I, want, so I wanted to explore this um, and I do explore this universal phenomena, I think, through the book, but I, especially in the end of the book, I explore it through the lens of Islam. So like what happens when Islam, when, when Islam is sort of used to worship, like to become, to, wor- to worship an idea of purity? Uh, and I think that there is nothing that I can think of that resists a vision of purity, a worship of purity more than grief, because grief cannot be disciplined. It does not follow a schedule. It does not stick to a timetable. It does... It does what it needs to do. It's leaky, it's messy, it's endless. Um, and so when a Puritan form of religion confronts grief, I think, you can either disfigure yourself as a human to submit to the Puritanism, to an idea of how grief is supposed to work correctly, or you can submit to the human and see that our ideas of the pure are actually misguided and, root, and maybe rooted in self-hate. Um, and that love means accepting ourselves as we are. And maybe like the problem is not us, but the idea of purity that we're worshiping to begin with. And so that's sort of like in a nutshell. I mean, I can't like obviously get into all of it right, right now, but I think in a nutshell, that's what I was trying to do there. Oh, it's beautiful. How do you envision this book being used as a teaching resource? Oh, I think this book will be such a good use, a good, such a useful teaching teaching resource. My my hope is that maybe it could even be read in high school, to be honest. Um, yes. But I think, um, I mean, it's written accessibly enough. Definitely, uh, it's more accessible than Shakespeare, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but also, I think um, it would be it would be useful in all kinds of undergraduate classrooms, right? So in Islam classes, I think it's like the book is um, is coming at a good time where we're actually beginning to understand that ideas are connected to people and the book can, you know, thinks about various theory, like thinks about citizenship. It thinks about race. It thinks about gender. It thinks about religion as connected to each other through Quranic verses through um, it. Like, so it's embodying these ideas that we think about. And I can imagine the book being used in, you know, anthropology classes, English classes and political science classes um, at the graduate level. I, sorry, you were saying writing classes. Yes, writing classes, right. Um, in graduate classes, I think I can see it being used even in theories and methods classes, thinking about what happens when the disciplinary boundaries of a, of a discipline actually are being extended. What does, that, what does that look like when they're being pushed against, when they actually can't offer, um, when they can't offer enough space for scholars to do the kind of work that they want to do, that they need to do, that they think is important to do? 
Um, and also, so like, how do we extend those boundaries is a question that I think the book really does consider. Um, recently, I gave a talk at Princeton and I met with a policy class and they read, so there's different chapters I think that would work well for various classes as well. The chapters are all standalone and they they build on each other, but you can read them alone as well. And so um, this class, this graduate class read um, the chapter on extremism and I was curious to see how that would how that would go, especially because all of the other readings that they were doing were very academic, like very, uh, like, you know, strictly academic, uh, like depending on how you define academic. But, you know, there weren't embodied theory, that's for sure. And so um, it was, it was actually really an amazing experience because the students really connected to it. They were really grateful for thinking about, you know, stepping back and thinking about these ideas sort of like from a larger framework, like what is extremism? How, like, what are the ways that that word what kind of work does that word do for us? Um, what are the different ways that we experience it? And um, and how do we ask like fundamental questions of ourselves about the ways that we define that word? What does it tell us about ourselves? And so, yeah, I can think of it as a really useful teaching tool in all kinds of contexts. What advice do you have for others? And I, I, I mean, I guess anyone, but here I'm imagining women of color, Muslim women of color who are interested in writing similar books. Um, so... You know, I think that the, I, I, you know, I would love, 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 love for women of color, for Muslim women to write, write books and write about their experiences because the same way that other people are feeling seen in this book, I want, I want to feel seen in other people's books. Like that would be an amazing experience for me too. Um, And I think the advice that I have is to cultivate communities to write in and then write in those communities. So like we need to, you know, we need to build an archive, as I said earlier, our experiences, our stories matter deeply they're important they're worth discussing and sharing um you know the poet Roske says this thing about joy that joy is about like his definition of joy is that it, it, like one of the ways that he thinks about it is to say that it is a it is the ability to you know lay our sorrows together to share our sorrows um you know and communities help us see our blind spots they help us practice they help us speak constructively so you know when you're writing alone i think it's like it's like, I think writing is like alone is a beautiful process, but it's really amazing when you share it with someone else and you see how those words are impacting another human being. Um, and they help us, I think writing in community, I think helps us write more lovingly, more responsibly, more beautifully. You know, we are, um, uh, just to go back to your point earlier about, you know, sometimes we're made to feel as Muslim women that we should like pick one over the other, like fight white supremacy and not patriarchy because it's not the right time for that. Um, but as a Muslim woman, often we find ourselves at the crosshairs of patriarchy and white supremacy, both like within the white supremacist society that we're in that practices patriarchy and religious patriarchy. And we can't afford to pick one over the other. There's no, you know, people will sometimes say it's not the right time to be doing this. We should do this other thing instead. But there's actually no time for telling someone to stop oppressing you. And um, for those people who are really worried about, you know, how bad it'll look to talk about a certain kind of patriarchy in the face of white supremacy, maybe they should lay off the patriarchy until white supremacy is adult. Not tell me what what you know what to resist or what not to resist. So right, no, because there, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm think I think so much about this question, right? The the, mm-hmm. the way that Muslim feminists and Muslim women generally are told and we're constantly shamed for telling our stories because right. oh my god, Islamophobia will co-opt this story, and right. you know our communities, you know, ex- so we're just constantly expected to just set aside our our gender 
um, right. and to pick one to pick one particular um, you know identity over another one. And I'm right. so thank you. Yeah, which is one of the reasons I love <laughs> this book so much. <laughs> thank, thank you for saying that. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us, uh, with our audience, about this book or about anything else um, before we close? Um, well, I would say that I hope that people will trust themselves to go and trust me to go on a journey with me on this book and to do the work, the hard work to see themselves in it. For some people, that work will be easier than others. But I think that it could be a really re rewarding experience for everyone, anyone who does it. I agree. Oh, I totally, totally. I, yeah, it, it is very, very rewarding. But then again, for me, it was very easy to see myself in it. So yeah. I was <laughs> but so we like to end the interview uh, by asking our guests to share with us anything that they're currently working on um, uh -huh. that we can look forward to in the near future. So, uh, you know, I'm working on some things, but I'm actually really, really committed to this idea of slow scholarship right now as a resistance to cap like neoliberal capitalist mm -hmm. modes of production, where we just sort of like put pressure on people to produce things regardless of whether they've actually had enough time to think through and cultivate an idea. And I think in the process, among the harms that we do is that, you know, we have trees sacrifice their lives so that we can write those words on paper and share them with others. Um, so I think right now I, I'm, you know, I've done, I've like, you know, turned the book in and I'm thinking now about like, I'm thinking and I'm looking and I'm listening and I'm reading and I'm letting things come into my body, into my mind, into my heart. Um, and so at some point I'll be ready to offer something, but I think for a while I need to, I need to absorb. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on. I think that's the right decision. <laughs> the right choice. Well, thank you so much, Aisha. I, I really enjoyed this. And thank you again for your wonderful book, The Color of God. Um, and uh, so glad that we, we had a chance to do this. Thank you so much for interviewing me. And I really enjoyed my conversation with you. All right, beloved listeners. That was my discussion with Aisha Todri about her book, The Color of God, published in 2021 with One World Publications. Thank you all so much for listening and I will see you next month, inshallah. And I'm Mubarak to those celebrating.